2: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 14th. Today, the new mask guidelines from the CDC. And why voting bills are targeting the people who run elections.
1: The CDC announced some pretty big guidance on Thursday.
3: We have all longed for this moment when we can get back to some sense of normalcy.
1: They announced that fully vaccinated people, which means that you are two weeks out from getting either one dose of the Johnson & Johnson shot, or two weeks out from getting the second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna shot, don't have to wear a mask indoors or outdoors, and they don't have to physically distance.
3: Based on the continuing downward trajectory of cases, the scientific data on the performance of our vaccines, and our understanding of how the virus spreads, that moment has come for those who are fully vaccinated. You
1: can go back to a lot of your pre-pandemic activities. You can get together in large groups. There are, of course, caveats and exceptions to this, but this is a, a big change for a lot of people's behavior. My name is Abu Abutalib, and I'm a health policy reporter with The Washington Post.
2: I mean, this feels like a huge milestone in the pandemic, but it also feels really fast because it was just like a couple of weeks ago that the CDC said that vaccinated people don't have to wear masks outside. And now they are dramatically like opening up the situations where vaccinated people can go maskless. It is a
1: really big change. And this is a big moment in the pandemic. We are, you know, almost a year and a half into this 14 or 15 months Since we've been basically at home, unless people had jobs that required them to go in. And they're basically saying, you know, if you're fully vaccinated and you're around other fully vaccinated people, you can essentially go back to normal. Um, You can get together in large groups, inside or outside. You basically don't have to worry about getting really sick from covid And it is a big change because it was just a couple of weeks ago that the CDC first announced that fully vaccinated people don't have to wear masks outdoors, uh, but we're still insisting that you have to wear them indoors. And you know, a lot of people are really excited about this and think it's a big moment and that the science does support this. But there are a lot of people who are very worried, especially because only about a third of the country is vaccinated right now. Meaning there are about two thirds of people who don't have any shot or maybe have one shot, who it raises a lot of questions for. And there are still people who aren't eligible to get a vaccine.
2: You also mentioned exceptions, and I think that those are important. So can you walk us through what are the places where even vaccinated people are still mandated to wear masks? So there are exceptions
1: to this rule. On airplanes, buses, trains, public transportation, everyone still has to wear a mask. For immune-compromised people, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said they had to talk to their doctors about whether or not they could take off their mask, even if they're fully vaccinated.
3: If you are immune-compromised, you will most definitely want to talk to your doctor before giving up your mask. Also... Locations such as healthcare facilities will continue to follow their specific infection control recommendations.
1: And the other thing is that states, cities, stores, businesses will have to decide on a case by case basis whether they want to still have mask mandates. And this is actually kind of a difficult situation for them. If a grocery store or a state or a city you're in still has mask mandates, you still have to comply with those. So we will probably see some places relax some of their mask mandates and others, you know, we'll we'll have to decide what makes sense, but it also could make it harder to
2: enforce. And those are the complicated situations that I think a lot of people are worried about, because, of course, for people who are working in stores or people who are working in hospitality, like they can't know for sure who is vaccinated and who is not. And so it seems like it puts the onus back onto a lot of these store owners and business owners to enforce mask mandates that are no longer being enforced by the federal government. That's
1: absolutely right. We heard already yesterday some of the immediate reaction from business leaders, from unions, was that a lot of this was unclear for how they were supposed to enforce it and how they were supposed to craft their mandates. There's no way to tell unless you require proof of vaccination, which is not something that's in place right now in the United States to know who's vaccinated and who isn't. You can't just look at someone and and figure that out. A lot of stores have already had a hard time trying to enforce mask mandates, even when they were required. So Mm -hmm. uh, we heard from some of these business leaders and unions, they wanted more clarity around what they were supposed to do. They want some help, you know, in terms of figuring out what makes the most sense for their customers. And some of that might depend on the region of their country that they're in and the the rate of vaccination in that particular region. But there are a lot of thorny questions, I think, that still aren't resolved, that people are going to be clamoring for some clarity and guidance about in the next few days, a few
2: weeks. And how does this guidance apply to children and also to schools where children are going to start showing up in person again?
1: The question of how it applies to kids is another difficult issue. Children under 12 are not eligible for the vaccine yet. Kids 12 to 15 can now get the Pfizer vaccine, and a lot of people are lining their kids up to get it. But for kids under 12, they're still not eligible, which does raise questions about summer camps in the more immediate future and school reopenings. When I asked the CDC about this on Thursday, they said for kids under 12, they still need to take certain precautions. They still need to wear a well-fitted mask. They want to update their camp guidance soon. But that's kind of all we have right now. So for parents with children under 12, with children who are not vaccinated, I think this does worry them. What is and is not safe for their kids and where can they take them and where can they not without exposing them to more risk?
2: So if there are concerns about how this is going to be implemented, then why is the CDC doing this? What is their rationale for moving, it seems, pretty quickly to eliminate some of the mass mandates for, for vaccinated people?
1: There are a couple important factors to note. The first thing is that there's a mounting body of real-world evidence showing that the vaccines are just as effective in the real world as they are in clinical trials. And they were about 95% effective for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, about 80% effective for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in clinical trials, which is a really, really effective vaccine. There were some questions as to whether it was actually going to be that good and that protective in the real world. And the evidence points to the fact that it is, which is remarkable. The other thing is that the rate of breakthrough infections in vaccinated people is extremely low. And even when it does happen... It seems like those infections are very mild. There's very, very little risk that that turns into a serious infection that requires some sort of hospitalization. And the other thing is that even for vaccinated people who might somehow contract the infection, their risk of transmitting it to other people is also very low. So with all of that, they basically determined that the risk for fully vaccinated people is at an acceptable level kind of like the risk we live with with flu every year there's there's no such thing as absolutely zero risk but it is at, at an acceptable level So all of that signaled that this was okay for fully vaccinated people. The other thing that a lot of experts I spoke to raised is that this could be a good way to incentivize otherwise hesitant people to get vaccinated. One expert we spoke with said for young people who are hesitant, if you say get vaccinated but nothing changes, that's not really an incentive. Now they can see they can go back to normal safely. They can go back to a lot of their pre-pandemic activities. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee addressed that, you know, he said…
0: And this is a heck of a benefit. Look at people who have been annoyed by this mask as a really good reason to get vaccinated. This is a ticket to freedom. That shot is a ticket to freedom for masks, and we hope people will avail
3: themselves to it.
1: This comes at the same time that the administration and state and local officials are also working really hard to incentivize people to get vaccinated. I mean,
2: I get that this is an incentive to get people vaccinated, but I thought the, the incentive of getting people vaccinated is like not dying from coronavirus. I, I It's hard for me to believe that like the annoyance of wearing a mask can eclipse the, the threat of getting seriously ill or dying.
1: That would make sense. The risk of death or even hospitalization with these vaccines is almost zero. I think the thing that we have to remember, though, is there are pretty deeply entrenched views about vaccine hesitancy for various reasons. There are people who still don't fully accept the threat of coronavirus if it hasn't directly impacted them or their families. I mean, you see someone like Ohio Governor Mike DeWine having a vaccination lottery where five people could win a million dollars, which is insane that those are the types of incentives that some officials feel they need to provide to convince people that they should get vaccinated. But that's how deeply entrenched some of these views are.
2: And I also wonder if there is a trust issue here when it comes to this messaging from the CDC. I think we all remember that there were some complicated and one might say bungled messages coming early in the pandemic about should we wear a mask? Should we not wear a mask? What is the reason why we're wearing masks and what situations we should be wearing masks? And it feels like I'm not 100% certain that everyone's going to hear this message from the CDC and say, I completely trust and understand what they're saying, and I'm going to follow this new guidance.
1: The CDC has come under a lot of criticism for its messaging, for the way it's communicated, what is and is not safe for the public through the various points of this pandemic. And there was some criticism on Thursday about that they didn't articulate well enough why the sudden change in guidance, how it would work in these situations that people are worried about, and, and basically justifying what had changed so much in the last couple of weeks that we'd gotten to this point. I think the communications continue to be an ongoing issue. And I think it's going to be incumbent on the administration in the next few days and weeks to really explain this to people, to address some of those concerns, to model the various types of behavior and to help people really understand what this new normal looks like for for fully vaccinated people. it, It likely will feel like a new normal if they're comfortable abiding by the new guidance. Not everyone will be because they'll be worried about who around them is vaccinated and isn't, but this is, this is not the a, a clear victory that they can sort of declare and move on from. I think there's a lot of explaining and education they need to do.
2: As much as this feels like a moment where we, as a country, are celebrating the fact that coronavirus cases have gotten so low, it does feel like there's still this looming threat abroad with surges elsewhere, variants elsewhere. Is there a concern that if variants are to come here or or cases start to increase in some way that we're going to have to go back to a mask mandate? That's absolutely a concern. And
1: it's something that CDC Director Rochelle Walensky mentioned in her remarks yesterday that Cases are decreasing now. So are hospitalizations and deaths in the United
3: States. But this past year has shown us that this virus can be unpredictable. So if things get worse, there is always a chance we may need to make change to these recommendations.
1: Right now, for the variants that are spreading in the United States, the vaccines are effective against all of them. But as you mentioned, with surges in other parts of the world, with other variants that could emerge and it will all depend on how effective the vaccines are against them. The guidance could still change. This is still a really unpredictable virus. And so it's a little bit premature to say it's it's over and we've declared victory.
2: So Yasmeen, I'm curious, are you going to stop wearing a mask in most situations? I think I'm going to sort of figure it out as I
1: go. I mostly don't wear one outside anymore, which I've quite enjoyed. I live in DC, so all the stores here still require masks in and grocery stores and various retail stores. I'll of course still abide by that. I think it's going to take me some time before I take it off indoors, mostly as a as a courtesy. I am fully vaccinated, but it does feel like people don't know whether I am or not and the employees in those stores don't really have that luxury of asking. So for now, I think I, I will probably still keep it on when I go into a public place
2: indoors. Abu Abutaleb reports on health policy for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svarnovsky.
3: In-laws. Love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem.
0: It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on Season 4 of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So right now, what we're seeing in states across the country are dozens and dozens of laws being considered to restrict voting access. And some of these laws are passing. There are also lots of laws to expand voting access, and some of those laws are passing, too. And unfortunately, there's this divide between red and blue states about which bills are passing, right? So depending on the political climate of the state you live in is going to you know, determine whether you're likelier to see
2: restrictions or expansions of voting access in your state. Amy Gardner reports on voting for The Post, and she has been covering the wave of new laws cropping up to address election problems.
0: Some of the states that have already passed voting restrictions include Georgia. Demonstrators are planning to gather in protest of Georgia's new election law. And Florida.
1: Governor DeSantis has signed an election bill that puts new restrictions on voting.
0: And Iowa and Montana. And we are looking closely at Texas.
1: This
3: afternoon, the Texas House advanced one of two controversial voting bills. Senate Bill 7 now heads back to the Senate which has a couple of big, far-reaching
0: bills that it's considering right now, and Ohio and Michigan. The pressure is not abating on Republican lawmakers, who are the primary you know, proponents and sponsors of these bills, to pass them. There's tremendous pressure coming from party leaders in the states, from former President Donald Trump, who continues to put out statements about what he claims without evidence was all the fraud that he claims happened in last year's election, and from their own constituents who believe Trump and believe that more security measures are, or say they believe that that more security measures are needed to protect the integrity of elections.
2: And so these voting bills that are being passed what do they do? What are some of the themes that you've seen come up?
0: So we're seeing a wide range of different kinds of restrictions, and, and some of them pop up in more than one state. We're seeing uh, restrictions on who may drop off mail ballot, new ID provisions for voting by mail, curtailments of the use of drop boxes where you can drop your mail ballot, uh rule that would prohibit anyone from handing out food or water to people standing in lines in a couple of states. Also, a couple of states have passed provisions that would ban private foundations or charitable entities from donating money to election officials
2: to help them administer elections. Why are Republicans saying that some of these measures are necessary?
0: They're saying they're necessary, to improve security of elections they're saying they're necessary because the public isn't sure that elections are secure even though they readily acknowledge that some of that belief is based on false or unsubstantiated claims made by republicans including donald trump and when you question lawmakers and governors well your elections w- went really, really smoothly. The answer is, well, you can always do better and you can always anticipate the next set of problems that we would face. And so we're just always going to stay on top of it. Obviously, there is a more critical interpretation of why Republicans are doing this, which is that preventing money from helping local governments administer elections or making it harder for people to vote by mail after you know, avalanche of Democrats chose to vote this way is all intended to make it harder for people to vote who don't vote for Republicans. Mm. And as a lot of Democratic activists and voting rights advocates have been saying quite often recently, they criticize the Republican Party for instead of trying to change its ideas after it lost the elections, it's just trying to prevent its
2: critics from it being able to vote. So who who do we anticipate will be affected by these laws?
0: So it's very interesting, and it depends on which provision you're talking about. Like I mentioned the line warming provision, which is the process of providing food or water to people standing in line. I think that the conventional wisdom is that that would affect communities of color more because those are the communities where lines tend to occur. But When you talk about restrictions on mail voting, for instance, in Florida, that's a different calculation. It's absolutely true that more Democrats voted by mail than Republicans last year, but that was an anomaly. And I spoke with a Democratic political operative in Florida who actually ran Obama's campaign in 2008 in Florida, Steve Shale, who said— it's a potential mistake for Republicans to assume that this is the new normal. We don't usually assume that there's a new normal until we've seen something occur, not just over one election cycle, but over multiple cycles. And he said, my personal theory is that to some extent, voting behavior is going to snap back to the mean. And that means that more Republicans will come back home to mail voting, which was their domain in prior elections, and that Democrats will snap back to their mean of more in-person voting.
2: But then why would Republicans be targeting something like mail voting that has historically worked for them or benefited them? Like, what is the, what is the bet that they're making on why that's important?
0: I think there's a couple of things there. There's the bet that they're making that some number of Democrats will stick with mail voting and that some number of Republicans will stick with in-person voting, whether it's early or on election day. But I also think that there is something that's less logical about this that you have to consider, and that is the fealty of the Republican Party to Donald Trump. I mean, that's just so clear. Look what's happening to Liz Cheney right now in Washington. Anybody who says the election wasn't stolen is a pariah in the Republican Party of 2021. And so I believe that a lot of Republicans went along with passing these bills, I know this because I've spoken to some of them, because they felt they had to, because if they stood out and spoke out against these bills publicly, they would be criticized by their own voters, potentially by Donald Trump, by their local and state party officials. And so they voted for a bill that they were not sure was a good idea, not exactly a profile in
2: courage. So it sounds like some of the legislation that's also being considered focuses specifically on election officials. Can you talk through some of these mandates that would have an effect on the people whose job it is to actually run these elections?
0: So some of these provisions actually tie the hands of election officials specifically, and in some cases, are actually punitive. So not only are lawmakers in some of these states saying local election officials can no longer do X, Y, or Z, like provide drive-through voting or provide more than one Dropbox. In some cases, they're actually proposing the assessment of civil penalties. Uh, In one case in Florida, it's a $25,000 penalty if you don't follow the new rule about Dropbox security.
1: That new law lets voters use drop boxes only during their county's early voting hours rather than 24-7. So that means somebody has to be standing there in person to monitor each drop box location.
0: So that has this potential to have a chilling effect on how election officials approach their jobs. And I'll talk about Texas because that's one that's in the hopper right now. Last year, the election official, known as the clerk in Houston, did a lot of really innovative things to make it easier for people to vote because of the pandemic. He set up these drive-through voting stations. He set up a 24-hour voting marathon of early voting where there was one 24-hour period. I think it was in the week before Election Day where certain voting centers were literally open for 24 straight hours. It was all meant to sort of accommodate all different sorts of people and their personal lives and jobs and schedules and all of that. Mm -hmm. So all of these things that he did, the proposed laws prohibit. And so that was a direct rebuke to the ability of local election officials to innovate and respond in the moment to circumstances.
2: So if some of these new proposed laws or provisions would actually fine or potentially criminally charge these election officials for things that you could argue are part of their job or part of helping people be able to vote, I guess what message does that send to these election officials?
0: It sends a message that they have to be very, very careful. And if I'm an election official facing a $25,000 civil fine, if I or someone on my staff accidentally leaves the drop box open after the hours that my election office is closed, which is what Florida just passed, I'm going to err on the side of caution In terms of providing that access so that I don't break that rule, so that I don't face personally a $25,000 fine. So it's hard to imagine that it doesn't have a chilling effect on the way that election officials are going to enforce and interpret those kinds of provisions.
2: Which I find... Notable or ironic, considering the fact that so many of these election officials were in some ways like heroes of the last election in upholding our democratic process. Many of them faced death threats or harassment because of their willingness to continue the election the way that it is supposed to be done by law. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason. Because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. And so is this part of like a bigger process of kind of blaming these election officials for the outcome of November? I
0: think it's part of a process where the Republican Party under Donald Trump and after his presidency has ended, has continued down this sort of continuum of vilifying government functions and portraying them as partisan when, in fact, you're talking about, for the vast majority of cases, nonpartisan professionals who are just trying to do their jobs. And what you have, unfortunately, when it comes to election administration is a group of people whose job is to make it easier for people to vote. And that very fact runs counter to what Trump was saying was the right thing last year. He made it very clear he didn't want it to be easier for people to vote during the election. And so now it's become a partisan opinion that if you're an election official who wants to make it easier for people to vote you must be either willing to accommodate fraud or enabling fraud, or you're sort of anti-Republican.
2: Amy Gardner reports on voting for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talcoff. That's it for post reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Svarnovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.